headphones. <laughs> I've only got one bottle to pop. I think that's maybe why in the past I've been like, oh, it's so loud. And you're like, it sounds fine to me. Yeah, and like, now I'm... try some, some proper headphones. <laughs> sounds like you're being screamed at. Yeah, especially by me. <laughs> <laughs> normally screaming. I don't know. I don't know. You look beautiful, sweetheart. Thank you. Yeah. Kristen wore a dress. I do have a dress. We're going to have fancy cranberry pork and she's drinking wine on this episode and Winston's clearing his litter box. <laughs> Re-upped on the apartment. Ooh. I think we mentioned that in the last one. Oh, yeah. And rather unfortunate. <laughs> mm. Wine. Wine, wine, wine. <laughs> I am excited to do the pork chops though because uh, I think we mentioned the cookbook that we got for Valentine's on the last episode. Yeah. And uh yeah, we couldn't find what we needed to make the recipe, and I went looking for it whenever I did the grocery shopping this weekend. So, We're cranberry doing. pork chops and the green some bean kind casserole. Of, yeah, I don't think it's really a casserole because there's not anything bready in it. That's it's, right. It's, I guess, technically a casserole ish, just without the breading. <laughs> Welcome to the Nightmare Box, presenting mistakes were made. My name is. Brett Bloom, and I'm sitting across from the beautiful, the effervescent, the first time I've ever seen her in that dress, and goddamn, goddamn, Kristen Bloom. <laughs> did you almost forget your name? <laughs> I did. I looked down for a minute. I was like, boobs. Oh, wait. My name is Boobs, and I'm introducing Kristen Bloom. This is Boobs McGee. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've seen me wear it once before. But I don't think since, you've ever worn not that since one. college. What, yeah. But I used to wear it in college. Got fatter since then, and I've been back in the gym. <laughs> Badass bitch, back it's, in the gym. It's a little more snug than I'd prefer, but your bitch can fit back into this dress again. <laughs> it's beautiful, love. Thank, Thank you. you for wearing it. Well. Yeah. Um, so I've got like one big topic that I kind of want to meander around today, but I've got a few openers. Uh, the first one being that we finished the Bates Motel. We did. We actually finished it. We for, we almost forgot that it was coming off of Netflix like this week and, and we would have been very, very upset. What did you think? I liked it, but I, I think it's a curious choice to have gone as far into it as they did. Like mm -hmm. I think the way you and I talked about it before we ever actually started watching it, I was for whatever reason under the impression that the show basically went up to the movie and you kind of got like a peek into like you thought they would introduce Marion in the very last episode. Yeah, yeah. and I, I thought we were going to kind of cut off like where the movie really takes off. Mm -hmm. So it was just kind of leading us up to the events of the movie. Um, I do think it's an interesting choice to completely go a different direction with the series. And then, yeah. I, spoiler alert, it's been out for a while though. Um <laughs> kill off the character he doesn't die in i movie. forgot that they killed norman because yeah. in my head this was like some weird like prequel and that he was still alive at the end and then you went into the film like i thought that something strange had happened in the last but i could not remember that dylan kills norman yeah and it, i mean it's a nice my bad um <laughs> it's a nice i guess little way to wrap up the series because you have that kind of cliche closing shot of dylan with his family and yeah. he's finally free to move on and live his life because all of his family is dead now yeah and the um, hotel's up up for sale so it could imply you know that it carries on yeah. with somebody else yeah um so i guess it's a nice little like wrapping it up and putting a bow on it but at the same time i think i would have almost preferred 
having a series that built us up to mm-hmm. the movie and then the ideas, then you go watch the movie. Yeah. So. In my head, I thought Norman killed everybody um, and then basically walked into the hotel and it was implied that now we're going into the descent into madness where he's been alone all these years. And... Which I guess that, that wouldn't have really made sense with what they did with Marion in this yeah. uh, series because in the movie he does kill Marion yeah. in the series he lets Marion live and kills the dude she's fucking around with instead which yeah, is which was the detective from the original film your Sam Loomis character he he dies in the shower but he's not a detective in this one so yeah, yeah. weird choices to like kind of jump away from the novel and the film well like completely change some of the characters purposes and mm-hmm. yeah i mean i as a standalone, it was definitely a well-done series. Very well acted, well shot. Um, Beautifully acted, especially as you progress into those later seasons when they're like, oh, okay, we're we're fine. We got the deal where we can do the whole arc. Mm-hmm. And you see them really kind of become comfortable inside of their roles. Mm-hmm. That final shot where you've got the childlike Norman running to his mother and they're like embracing is, it, it should be in a mm-hmm. feature film. The Dylan's actor, I I need to see him in more things. He's fucking incredible. Well, that whole final <coughs> bit where he's hallucinating pretty much the first episode all over again, yeah. and he's, like, reliving those moments, but we're also seeing, like, flashbacks and him, like, in his present state, like, all, like, tattered was really cool, too. So, yeah, as a standalone, super cool. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. There are things I probably would have, if it had been my project, done differently. I do wish... If we were going to go the way that we went and have it in the way that we went, we had introduced Norma and uh, Ramiro's relationship a bit sooner. Because, mm-hmm. like, his acting, like, about... Ramiro's. Yeah, like, his acting, when we get to the scenes where he's, like, heartbroken over her, over her death, is, like, Whoop. so heartbreaking. But I feel like, story arc-wise, we didn't get enough to really feel that bad about it. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that's sad. He's seen a lot of people die. And, like, he, how does he really know her? We didn't get enough... Of the yeah, they time were married just for them. two weeks. Like, even if they yeah. had dated a bit longer and they'd still had this weird quirky marriage for insurance thing, that would have been yeah. fine. But I wish they weren't good enough friends, I think, to justify how heartbroken he was. And mm-hmm. I'm like, man, that acting is beautiful, but I wish we had had a bit more relationship. Well, it was one of the things that we talked about when they initially revealed their relationship, which was, I wish I would have seen a side of Romero that was infatuated with Norma. Or a softer yeah. side at So all. even if, like, she finally accepts him, but he's been madly in love with her since the day one, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, he treats her like an annoyance for so much of the Yeah, f- like, the, the only, only nice thing he ever does for her is kill the dude that's blackmailing her. Mm-hmm. It's, like, the only time you have a moment where it's like, oh, I think he actually likes her. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, the rest of the time he's very standoffish with her, so it's weird to be so suddenly, intensely in love. Yeah. So... I don't know. Like, I think if they were going to do it the way they did, I would have wasted less time on side story arcs that didn't end up going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like the bank chick. Like yeah. The, that, the, all that did was introduce infidelity to the show, well, and it drove me fucking crazy. The only point to her whole story arc was that he lied to the cop so that he then went to jail. And I feel like we could have done that in a whole different way where yeah. her kind of pointless side arc wasn't necessary Mm -hmm. he's gonna break out of the jail anyway so maybe the cops find the money and the id and they're like oh you definitely killed this guy if we know later down the road he's gonna break out to try to kill norman yeah because like (laughs) ramiro seems like a character who's so i keep on wanting to say ramirez just because i just bought that thing for you so i'd be like 
Romero, not Ramirez. Kristen bought me a beautiful <laughs> a couple of years ago, maybe not even a year ago. I think it was 2019, so yeah, I yeah. it was two years ago. Uh, she bought me this beautiful uh, wood print thing of a uh, of Ted Bundy. It's the picture from his feet while he's reading in the legal office and his feet are chained together. Um, and she did it again. She bought me the Ramirez where he's holding his hand up and he's got the pentagram on his palm. And so now Bundy has a buddy. <laughs> but as a result, I keep wanting to call Ramiro Ramirez. Yeah. That's not it. <laughs> Wrong character. Um, but like his character seems so level-headed throughout the entire series that I feel like, yeah, that would have been a better arc. Like he got arrested for the murder because it doesn't make sense for him to break out of jail when he literally only has two years yeah. left. Norman's not going anywhere. Yeah, so it's like you got two more years to bulk up and really make this kid suffer when you get mm. out. Like, because Ramiro wasn't aware of any other trouble Norman was in, so as far as he knew, Norman was just still hanging at the hotel, and Norman had come to see him recently, so he obviously knew Norman was still alive yeah. and out and about, so... It doesn't make sense for a character that was so level-headed throughout the whole thing and, like, tried to be morally right to throw mm. away his chance at freedom if he only had two years left. Like, yeah. if he had been in for a life sentence for a murder, yeah, that would have made way more sense for mm -hmm. him to be like, I'm going to go kill this motherfucker. <laughs> I'm going to get him. <laughs> he should have gone with a plea deal. Been like, I'll turn a serial killer over to you if you drop this <laughs> perjury charge. <laughs> like, I couldn't prove any of it at the time. Yeah. Like, Norma and him had destroyed all the evidence. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry. No, you're fine. But once he gets out of jail, he does nothing but make the situation ten times fucking worse for literally everybody. Like, he doesn't accomplish anything. He just gets a lot more people killed. <laughs> I do think the, like, eventual end for him, though, dying at Norma's side is really it's beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah, kind of a shame that he had all this rage that amounted <laughs> to nothing. But yeah, I do think him dying at her side was pretty poetic. It's mm -hmm. a, a shame that because he wasn't a little more careful in that moment and again seems outside of the norm for his character to have not gone ahead and just popped Norman and like yeah. collected Norma and gone on. Um, kind of sad though because he died in that moment and Norma's yeah. body still gets <laughs> desecrated more. Like the one thing he wanted to find her body and kill Norman her body still just gets drug around. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Ramiro, you accomplished nothing. Way to go. Um, not only did we finish Norman Bates, I finished the Love Languages book. What'd you think? I liked it. A bit too Jesus-y at the end. I forgot. A bit too heavy that. on the Jesus. <laughs> well, like, there's a weird thing with, uh, like, self-help books is they all fall back on the 12-step program. Mm -hmm. And this guy, very, very interesting book. I'd recommend it, especially to men, uh, now that I've read it, um, because men tend to be more emotionally closed off and it almost feels like he's going, hey guys, get your Listen shit up. together. <laughs> You're not your dad. Quit doing the shit that you got your grandfather laid in 1933. <laughs> well, you and I have talked. But by the end, he's like, and then I met this woman who's in like a, a psychotically abusive relationship. And I said, well, why don't we just turn to Jesus? You know? <laughs> well, I think for me, which I've, I've not really read a lot of self-help books, Self-help books. I think that's literally the only one I even own. Um, I haven't read many, but I do own the Big Blue book for AA because I, I check myself in and out of that just to check myself <laughs> on occasion. Well, you and I have talked in the past about um, like being religious and stuff like that, and how whenever because Brett was a Catholic at one point in his life, um, yeah. how whenever you were kind of going through um, what's it called 
whenever you get like committed. Confirmation. Yeah, confirmation. Mm -hmm. Whenever you commit yourself to the Catholic (laughs) religion. Um, Confirmation for a year and then baptism. (laughs) Yeah, like when you were going through that process, the guy that was like doing that with you was like... Go Pete, go. You can take the lessons or take the stories in the Bible kind of as just lessons and not like hard and fast truths. And I think for me... That was the priest. Oh. Yeah. Pete was much of that mindset, if I remember correctly, but where I remember that the most was the first time Mm -hmm. I went into that church and the priest was a former Marine and he was like, I don't believe Jesus ever really walked on water. You know, I think he did something impossible. I don't think that he abounded all the fish and bread it was probably something of a socialist message where hey everybody bring what you have we'll feed those who have nothing mm-hmm. you know as opposed to him just miraculously pulling 40 fish out of his ass you know <laughs> so yeah take treating them as, as lessons rather than yeah so fact. I, I guess that's kind of how i view like self-help self-help books that are like actually like worth reading there are some out there that are just garbage and yeah. you know or just silly and it's a money grab but I didn't even remember that there was any religious stuff in this book at all, mm-hmm. because for me, it was like, that's not what I walked away with being like, yeah. oh, that's the the lesson here. So like for me, all the religious stuff is in the very last mm-hmm. chapter, like as he's walking out the door and he's explaining that he's a pastor and, you know, yeah. so like that's his bread and butter is, you know, build it on the higher power, which is where my AA connection kind of came in. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for me, I think Doug Stanhope joke. I think for me, reading that book, it was more just like, oh, here are ways to proactively be Mm -hmm. kinder in your relationship and try to, I think a lot of people, um, and Brett and I, I think, have kind of been going through this recently. I think a lot of people, when they're in like a tough place, Mm -hmm. have a mindset of um, the other person is doing this and the other person is hurting me in this way. And like whenever you kind of stop and assess like what am I doing to contribute to this situation and how am I making this situation worse and how can I make it better how can I make it better I think is in that book anyway in particular what I thought was the most important part it wasn't like these are all end all be all ways to fix a relationship Mm -hmm. but more like if you understand these elements how can you work to better them yeah and it's once you read them because as we said on the last episode like they're not necessarily profound statements Mm -hmm. like you could easily get to a lot of these places on your own Mm -hmm. um but when you when you're reading the book it puts these not so profound statements they're easier to remember so Mm -hmm. like in the moment as something's happening you can adjust so like the big thing i learned was like I get up to get a refill out of the fridge or I get up to do something, you know, while we're at the table together, touching your shoulder as I pass you. It's a small thing. Mm -hmm. The most profound thing I think I got from the book is the love is a choice section Mm -hmm. because it's beaten into our heads as children that it should be this free form thing that just happens and exists and it's effortless prince charming he just swoops you up and you live happily ever after exactly it's it's given to us like it's supposed to be some sort of effortless thing Mm -hmm. and i think it frustrated our parents generation that it was not an effortless thing and so our generation grew up in these broken households that you know as blink 182 once said stood together for the kid (laughs) 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 and So then that becomes the example. And instead of learning the love thing, like our grandparents' generation, I would imagine, you know, 
were. I don't know why I feel that way, probably because my grandfather really loved my grandma Judy. Um, <clears throat> instead of getting that view of it, we get this combative view, and then we do that to each other because that's what our parents did. So we don't have this like idyllic, you know, we're staying together, but we're going to scream at each other all the time. You know, it's like what we grew up with as mm -hmm. opposed to we're staying together because we choose to love each other. And these are the steps that we need to make to establish that love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that makes sense. And I think especially, um, I don't really have a great example grandparent wise because, uh, um, well, mine was married like five times, but the last <laughs> one, he loved the shit out of her. <laughs> I, I know there are people out there who have grandparents who met in high school and stayed together always yeah. and loved each other to death until they literally died. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I don't have those examples in my own grandparents. No, I just mean generationally, I, not specifically, you know, you and me. Yeah. but I, My I, parents I, did not stay together for the kids. <laughs> I was going to say, um, I think probably dealing with like more extreme situations like the great depression and stuff probably kind of makes you like hunker down and or you're like we're in this together or the coronavirus <laughs> and the donald <laughs> trump presidency <laughs> yeah no I, I agree not a particularly profound book but i don't think i had ever um prior to reading it really understood why certain gestures were more meaningful to me than others like yeah. I, i've never like i like getting gifts and it's really nice to get a gift that's the perfect example i'll let you finish <laughs> like i like getting gifts and it's really mm -hmm. nice to get a gift but i've never gotten a gift and been like this means so much to me <laughs> you know like never been like sobbing over how like powerful the moment was or whatever but then like i'll have moments where somebody will say something really meaningful to me and i'm like i'm a little choked up like i need yeah. a second <laughs> yeah and that was the thing of, i'll get back to my gift giving example here in a second <laughs> but that was the thing that i think i i pulled away from the book was he says um if you're having like difficulties figuring out what your individual language is think about the things that your partner does that hurt you mm -hmm. and when i reflected on like every argument that we've ever had you are a very verbal affirmation mm -hmm. type person yeah, okay. we that get is in fights very strongly yeah. my love language we I get like in fights i get upset um, and I'm not like a, a violent person in our relationship, but I get very sarcastic when I get pissed off and I will say some pretty mean shit. <laughs> it's like very, very sharp, very poetic, very <laughs> few point. words. And then it'll break Kristen. Like I just, you know, punched her in the nose. And so when he mentioned, you know, think about the negativity and how that affects you or affects your partner, what's the opposite of that? If it, if you're going there to hurt them, then that's probably what it is that they need the most is the opposite mm -hmm. of whatever it is that makes them cry. Mm -hmm. And um, down to the gift giving example, I feel nothing except guilt when I'm given a gift. <laughs> I feel terrible because I'm like, why? Why'd you do this nice thing for me? You know, and there is no other side of that. Don't give me gifts. That's my love language is not receiving gifts. <laughs> like I've, I've had some that probably weren't like particularly fantastic gifts but like i feel like i'm a relatively thoughtful gift giver because gift giving is not my love language so when i go to buy a gift I'm no like, you give me brilliant gifts i'm not saying i don't <laughs> I know, appreciate the gifts i'm saying in the moment where i'm <laughs> opening know. the christmas present i'd rather shoot myself <laughs> i know but the thing that's funny about that though is because um 
affirmations for me are the thing that are important and like meaningful conversations and meaningful like moments Mm -hmm. on a verbal level i feel like whenever i go to buy gifts like i feel an obligation to buy a meaningful gift because i'm like i don't want to just buy a thing just to buy a thing i want it to be obvious that this gift is meaningful between us so then i'll go to give you a gift and because you're so (laughs) uncomfortable with them you're like thanks and you set it down (laughs) i appreciate it (laughs) i'll get to it in an hour and a half I'm like, God damn it, I really tried. I'm build up the courage to have you stare at me while I look at it for the first time. <laughs> Your response is because you're so uncomfortable, usually fairly underwhelming. You're just like, hey. No, you've given me some brilliant things. But it cracks me up every time. <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm sure he probably likes it. <laughs> I do. I, I do appreciate it very much. But yeah, I finished the love language thing. And I, I, I learned a lot from it, and I think it's it's really helped our relationship, even if I'm the only one that's recently read it. I'll you know, read it. Yeah. Well, that wasn't a jab at you, love. You're <laughs> reading bird by bird, and I'm I, very proud of you for reading I do that. actually like reading, because um, I'm not... I do it in my, like, technical books where it's, like, this is, like, technical information when I'm trying to do a project later. I might want to remember this. Like, I'll highlight stuff. But, like, I don't typically do it in my books books. Yeah. Um, Like, I I was one of those kids. It's a thing I learned to do in college and now I can't stop (laughs) underlining and breaking off paragraphs. (laughs) Well, I was one of those kids growing up where I was, like, you don't dog ear the book. You don't, like, maim. Yeah, you don't (laughs) break the spine. You don't maim the book in any way. The book (laughs) needs to be pristine when it goes back on the shelf. So, um, I yeah. want it to look like it had no impact yeah. on me whatsoever. <laughs> like nobody ever touched it. <laughs> um, so yeah, like the only time I mark my books is usually my technical books, which to be fair, that is most of my books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and most, that's what you're supposed to my, do with technical books. <laughs> most of my books do get marked up, but <laughs> like my personal books, I don't usually do that too. So that's been kind of fun reading bird by bird and like seeing the stuff that you marked and like there are a couple of passages where i'm like yeah i would have marked that too and then i'll see one a bit further down i'm like why didn't you mark this one (laughs) so then i'll mark that (laughs) well that's why i like because then when i go back through for the reread which i will do with books like bird by bird like maybe later this year or something i'll pull that one back out and reread it i do it all the time with pet cemetery it's my favorite book (laughs) um but like i i catch things because now I'm reading the underlined things and like God voice, like da 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 Oh, I probably wouldn't have done that one. And, oh, yeah, I do really like that one. And then, like, another paragraph, like, why the fuck didn't he do this he one? He missed this whole part of the story? <laughs> Was he even paying attention? Her best friend has cancer? He didn't care? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's kind of interesting, yeah, like, reading a book that someone else has, like, loved and, like, yeah. marked up and stuff. It's it's a different experience. I've never done that before. Well, I think it makes me a more engaged reader, which is, you know, I started doing it when I was taking Arroyo's class because he encouraged you to do shit like that. Like he'd give you print offs of stuff that he wanted you to fuck with so you weren't having to do it in your own books. Mm. Yeah, you but, can't do that to textbooks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not if you want to get your money back. <laughs> oh, most of mine weren't textbooks. They were books like the one that we're going to cover today. <clears throat> cover. I've only read the first 20 pages. I ain't covering shit. Listen up, class. <laughs> Listen up, class. <laughs> Listen to my Adderall rant. You know, <laughs> that I did at 3 o'clock this morning. I'm 
posters <laughs> of meme. Um, but he encouraged the underlining of things. And when I'm looking, like I'm sitting there and I'm reading a book and I've got a pen in my hand, I'm looking for something to underline. It becomes a mission to gleam some sort of importance out of the word, mm-hmm. uh, which Arroyo called reading like a writer. Mm-hmm. And so... In the future, if I need to go to bird by bird, and I'm like, I know that there's a passage I really liked, and I might have underlined something on every other page of that book, but I can skim through and go, I know how, kind of how the how the paragraph started because mm-hmm. I've engaged with it with my own pen, and I can go back and pull that into my memory bank. All right, Jax, fuck <laughs> you, bro. He's like, this is boring. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do like. We it, get it, Dad. You highlight. <laughs> You, uh, I think later in the book, you switched to a green pen, but the first part of the book, you're using a dark blue. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to use a light blue. So they kind of match, but they're not quite the same. <laughs> so I've been using like a really pretty teal blue where yours was like a blue blue. Would you like a refill, Milo? Uh, yes and no, because we have to cook later. Well, we've, it's all right. We're Doing pork chops. Yeah. <laughs> But I have. I have been enjoying it. I'm only a, a third of the way in, so I still have a ways to go. But yeah, there was like a, a chunk where she's, and I don't have the book in front of me, I left it at work. Um, but there's a chunk where she's like talking about, um, this will probably be my last class, we gotta save that for cooking. <coughs> I'm not walking all the way back. <laughs> there's a chunk where she's talking about uh, doing a writing assignment for the Special Olympics that... I think I was feeling some type of way that day anyway already, so it didn't yeah. help. But, like, I read that section, and I was like, okay. She's such a nice lady. I was, like, underlining stuff where I was like, why didn't Brad notice this? <laughs> What's wrong with him? Ah, <laughs> uh, damn. Um, d- should I just go into the big chunk, or should I go into the... I've got two things You're that I kind of want to cover with here. you. I'm steering the ship. I'm going into the book. Do it. Well, I still got my tongue. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, this should give us enough time. That's a bit of a foreshadowing. Well, I've still got my tongue. You won't understand that one until the movie comes out. The movie is what I was going to talk about. Oh, oh my bad. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Um, so, fuck it. We'll go into that and stuff. <laughs> no, um, we can do Okay, we'll do the book. So I finished the five love languages. <laughs> I was like sitting here going, what am I doing with my tongue later? I was like, that dress though. Um, <laughs> a little too graphic for the show. That's why my mother does not listen. That's rated R. Or it's yeah. rated explicit. Ah, fuck it. Um, we're loud. We're loud. We do's what we does. Um, so after reading the love languages, it was time to get back to my stack of books that need to be read because I tend to go to the bookstore and buy like five books and then they sit on the bookcase and I can't go back until I've got like two more up there. I have two bags sitting on top of the Well, the top bag's just one book. There's still two bags. I think I'm down to like three in my (laughs) to-be-read and this is the oldest one in my to-be-read. Um, it's called The Anatomy of Story, 22 Steps to Becoming a Master Storyteller. And it's more meant for screenwriting, but there's things to be gleaned for fiction writing as a whole out of it. And it was written by a guy named John Truby. My understanding is this is a very popular uh, book for like college courses and creative writing, but it was not one that I was made to read. It was one I found in the store, and I was like, ah, that looks really cool. It's really cool. <laughs> Turns out 
turns out. <laughs> <laughs> turns out it's the stress. <laughs> <laughs> um, the first thing that I want to get to, because I am only like 20 pages in, so I've only got three passages to read, but they're kind of long, um, is we were talking earlier about the love languages thing. And you're like, well, there's no real like profound thought. There's just rumination that you can, you know, take to your day to day to think about these things that you would normally think that you're above. Um, like I'm above the having to think about touching my wife. I love touching my wife, but I could do it more. Or I'm above saying I love you. I say it in all these other ways, but I'm not saying it in the right way. That is the great tie-in <laughs> to what I'm about to read, which is... Uh, his thoughts on the three-act theory. So, if you're listening to the show, I'm assuming you understand three-act. We've um, all studied Shakespeare at one point. At one point. <laughs> so you've got your first act, your second act, and your third act, which is your climactic act. Or if you think about it... happens in the last, like, 15 to 20. Exactly. Or if you're thinking about it from more of a film perspective, modern film perspective, we think of it as a five-act. Um... This is his thoughts on the three-act, because the three-act was built out of Aristotle's poetics, and it's the... It's old. It's old. <laughs> it's very old. Uh, all right. Whew. This is going to be very technical. I might get a little tongue twisted. Let me, let me, let me wet that whistle there. <laughs> so this is from page four. If you're a screenwriter, you probably moved from Aristotle to a much simpler understanding of story called the three-act structure. This is also problematic because three-act structure, albeit a lot easier to understand than Aristotle, is hopelessly simplistic and in many ways plain wrong. Three-act theory says that every story for the screen has three acts. The first act at the beginning, the second is the middle, the third is the end. The first act is about 30 pages long, or the first act is about 30 pages long, the third act is also about 30 pages long, and the second act runs to around 60 pages. And thus, three-act story supposedly has two or three plot points, whatever those are. Got that? Great. Now go and write a professional script. I'm simplifying this theory of story, but not by much. It should be obvious that such an elementary approach has even less practical value than Aristotle. But what's worse is that it promotes a view of story as mechanical. The idea of an act break comes from the convention of traditional theater, where we would close the curtain to signal the end of an act. We don't need to do that in movies, novels, and short stories, or even, for that matter, many contemporary plays. In short, act breaks are external to the story. Three-act structure is a mechanical device superimposed on the story and has nothing to do with its internal logic, where the story should or should not go. A mechanical view of story, like three-act theory, inevitably leads to episodic storytelling. Mm -hmm. An episodic story is a collection of pieces, like parts stored in a box, Events in the story stand out as discrete elements and don't connect or build steadily from beginning to end. 
the result is a story that moves the audience sporadically, if at all. And I think... I think when you're brand new and like a lot of the time you learn like the three-act structure in elementary school, like it's not even something you learn in college. You learn it very early on. My exact note on this is it's a basic building block that we we ascribe as fact. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, I I think if you're brand new and you've never really like tried writing or tried Mm -hmm. filmmaking or anything like that, it's a decent starting point for sure. Yeah, it's and, like in high school where they're like, we need you to write a five-paragraph essay, introduction paragraph, ending paragraph, mm-hmm. three-body in mm-hmm. the middle. <laughs> and there are a lot of good works out there that do kind of follow that structure. Because, yeah, you have this, and the formula is basically inciting incident. Like the, um, I forget what the rise to the climax yeah. is called, but there's a technical Rising term action. Oh, yeah, right. Literal. <laughs> Rising <laughs> action, and then you have the climax, and then there's a formal word for the resolution. Where it drops um, and then kind of comes back up again. It looks yeah. like Dogecoin. <laughs> <laughs> and there are a lot of, I think, good works that kind of at their basis like have that formula, but then like you have all these other... Works that, yeah, okay, there are in almost all compelling stories some kind of inciting action that leads your character on this story, but mm-hmm. it's not like all rising to a final climax and then we have a pretty little resolution at the end. Um, like, if you follow that formula only, then you miss movies like I've been thinking of ending things that was like a, a yeah. whirlwind of what the fuck. What in the absolute... <laughs> and like, Sam I'm Hill's so, going on here. I'm so intrigued, yeah. but where are we in the story? <laughs> or the book that I was reading um, last year at the end of the year, um, Running the Light, mm-hmm. where it builds and builds and builds and ends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of... You lose the... No Country for Old Men. My favorite movie is probably a 15-act goddamn story mm. to get where it goes, and where it goes is not where you expect it to go. And Hereditary is kind of that Hereditary, way, too, I feel like. Yeah. And so you have all these, like, really beautiful artistic works that come out of, like, breaking the mold. You're like, yeah, with most movies... Or works of art or whatever. There is still kind of an inciting incident that spirals your character. But, like, you don't always have to lead to this final, like, packaged resolution. Yeah. It isn't Beowulf. Yeah. (laughs) Hereditary, technically, I guess. Spoiler alert. um, Him accidentally killing his sister is kind of the inciting incident that leads to the spiral of the rest of the movie. But the rest of the movie is bizarre. Yeah. And you don't really get a resolution. And, like... I've been thinking of ending things. Her going to the parents' house is, again, kind of the inciting incident because mm-hmm. shit gets weird after she gets there. But then it's just weird. <laughs> yeah. Like, you don't have to, like... And, like, I hate the idea of, like, packaging the movie up in the last... Because, yeah, that's what they teach you in school. The last 15 to 20 minutes is the resolution. Wrap it up. Yeah. And, and, like, package it up. And it's like, mm. I'm supposed to have taken this entire hour and crush it down into something meaningful in yeah. the last 15 minutes that... You walk away and go, oh. Well, let me kind of play around because we, we talked about Bates earlier. And I know that you haven't seen Psycho recently. I'm hoping, it's been years I'm hoping that it. we can watch it soon because I now that we've finished Bates, I want to see what you think of Hitchcock. No, I would like to watch it. Um, just, I, I have like the premise of it in my mind, but like the concrete details are very vague. I haven't yeah. seen it in years. Well, you get like the inciting in- incident 
is the situation with Marion mm-hmm. for the first little bit of the film. Your secondary act is what happened to Marion away from Norman Bates. Now it's Sam Loomis and the chick um, trying to f- locate the chick's sister, Marion. And then the third act is they're going up the stairs to the hotel to confront Norman. And it's a perfect three-act movie. Mm -hmm. But it is a three-act movie. Whereas they took five seasons to tell a similar story on the Bates Motel. Can you really... That's an interesting thought. Can you really compare TV series, though, in Nothing that way? To, not to anything Hitchcock ever did, no. Well, I don't mean that. I mean to, like, the structure we put on, like, books or movies or whatever that are final works by well, themselves. I, like, I view television... My, my thoughts on television are that a season should follow an overall five-part arc. Mm. So... You need an inciting incident in like the first episode that gets resolved either directly or indirectly by the final episode of that season. Mm -hmm. Nobody does it better than like Breaking Bad and uh, Sons of Anarchy. They're brilliant at midway point. I've resolved the issue that got us here. I made it a fuckload worse. Dip again. Come back up. We've resolved the secondary and the climax. And then that affects the next. So as the seasons progress, you get this beautiful swaying expansion of the initial issue that kicked off the entire show. Yeah. And not that no one's ever done it right. I haven't seen Sons of Anarchy. Um, and there are quite a few. It's pretty awesome. There are quite a few good shows that we've started <laughs> that we haven't finished. Bases the first show we've actually gone, gone all to the finish. way through. Um not not that there aren't shows that aren't successful about it, but I feel like my only hesitancy to compare TV shows to the structure we put towards um, film or, or books or any finalized work. Like, yeah, you can make a movie and then later on decide to do a sequel, but the movie that you made is a final work by yeah. itself. Um, TV shows Unless are... some bastard wants to turn it into a TV show 60 years after you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's good. Um, but TV shows are, are very often, I feel like cash grabs to some extent, like most people Hmm. don't create a TV show and go, this is the start and this is the end. And that's that question. Do you feel that it's still that way? I would agree with you in the, in the era of cable news. I would agree with you wholeheartedly that it's a cash grab, but like in the era of Netflix and Amazon prime, do you feel that it's still just a cash grab opportunity? Yeah. Because you come out with a season and depending on how successful that season is, you get pumped more money to then now you suddenly have to expand a world that was not initially intended to be bigger than it was. Yeah. And like most people, when they film the first season, they'll leave it open-ended in case they get like good reviews and get mm-hmm. to get picked up for a second season. So a lot of people leave the story a little open to some extent. But then I haven't seen it start to finish, to be fair. So I can't really um, talk about where the transition happened. But I know Lost is a fantastic example. Yeah. Like the TV show Lost was created to be a certain length, I think, if I'm remembering right. And that was all that they were intending to film. And then I think they told them they were cutting it short. So Mm -hmm. I think I want to say it's David Fincher that directed Lost as well. I Hmm. could be wrong about that, though. He's done a lot of shit that I'm just now finding (laughs) out about. I could be wrong about that. Um, There's another TV series that he did that I'm blanking on the name of that's supposedly fantastic. And I've never... Twin Peaks. I've never watched it, but I've heard it's fantastic. Um, 
but it was originally intended to be a certain length. And then if I'm remembering right, they basically told him, hey, you're getting canceled, wrap this up. So like he took this original intended story and crammed it down into a shorter story. And then it ended up being more successful. So then they were like, expand it back out. And he's like, I've already like wrapped it yeah. up where this is where it's supposed to end. So then <laughs> you hit, I think it's past season three, if I'm remembering right, where Lost just no longer makes sense. Well, it's like what we were talking about this morning with The Walking Dead. Like you really hit this point where it's like, okay, we're done here. Yeah. We're good. So like the <laughs> TV shows, like they don't follow any proper structure a lot of the time because it's like, oh, more money, let's keep going. And then it's like, where's the story going, though? Yeah. <laughs> like, you can't we... do that with books. That's, yeah. That's, that's a beautiful fucking example. Like, Harry Potter had to hit every goddamn time. You know, yeah, Twilight had to hit for its audience every goddamn time. And, like, you and I have a TV show that we want to do, and I feel and like... And it's episodic. It's one season, yeah. and I'm done. Like and I... if you want me to do something else, I'll do something else in the same vein of it, mm. like American Horror Story style, but I'm not continuing on with this these characters. Story. Yeah. Like, and I get... Especially if you're just hitting a stride in your career and the money's really starting to come in where you kind of like, you know, we're like, oh, God, let's keep this going. Yeah, I'm never going to see that amount again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like if like you want to keep the flame burning, like I get that some people get yeah. caught up in that. But I feel like if you have any real integrity about your art, like you have to have a start and a finish. Yeah, you stop. Yeah, and like when the story's done, the story's done. It doesn't matter if the money's still coming yeah. in. So and like, if you're lost out there, team, think Scrubs. Why <laughs> did they ever have to teach at the university? What did that give to the fucking universe that was that beautiful TV show? Like, Why did we need to keep up with The Office after Michael left? <laughs> yeah, no, really. And like Dwight being the manager at the end is kind of like they, they lost their way for a while and then kind of found mm. a story again and came That's back. That's all writer's strike. Era. Yeah, <laughs> so it does kind of have a comeback but yeah there are a lot of stories where it's like we're just dragging this dead horse along yeah and we should have ended it that's and like interesting i've never thought about it that way yeah and like movies and and books don't fall prey to that so you get these really... except for the avengers films like superhero movies can get sequels. beaten to goddamn death sequels are different sequels yeah <laughs> sequels are different. there are sequels to psycho <laughs> what was the the collector's edition that you saw today you're like they've got the omen collector's edition oh, and yeah. i was like if you if you buy that i'll cut off both your fucking <laughs> you hands you need to see the one <laughs> you yeah, can see no. the omen you don't need to see the part where he's the you know president of the united states left behind style <laughs> no and... sequels sequels are excluded there are sequels that are well done but the original premise and and like I feel like that's where you get to play outside of the three act structure is like when you know you still like have this kind of weird story that's in the middle and it doesn't necessarily have to follow uniform when you're not following uniform because you're trying to make more money though yeah. <laughs> it's a problem <laughs> like the story should still go somewhere even yeah. if it's not following the three act yeah, structure you lose the story after a while you it gets away from you that that is really fucking interesting because like I what I'm not a big TV person. I'm a huge movie person and I read every day. But like episodic TV shows are really hard for me to follow, except for somebody feed Phil. That just makes me happy. That's fine. <laughs> I'm so sad that his mom's gone. Yeah. That happened before we knew him, love. Yeah, but, but <laughs> somebody feed Phil is very wholesome though. If you need just a feel good show, yeah, like if you just want to be stoned and look at the TV and go, man, I'd eat that. And he looks really happy to be eating that. <laughs> <Every time. laughs> like that one chick that's like, 
Which, was he in his 40s or 50s? I can't remember. But she's like, you're 40. <laughs> <laughs> There's something weirdly wholesome about seeing this older dude just in a childlike way really enjoying his life. <laughs> yeah. Um, can I hop into the next one? Mm-hmm. We could have done a whole episode on three-act. I should have thought my notes through. What's wrong with you? Well, but it's a it's a big book, and I'm only 20 pages in. But so. we're back. Look how, how we well are. the conversation's fun. Exactly. Get yourself another no, glass of wine. No, because we're going we're gonna to cook soon. Okay. Saving it. So we can we can be winos together. I love being a wino. It's one of my favorite <laughs> things. Next to that dress, go titties go. Um, oh, yeah. Um, so... The next thing that I want to talk about um, is he's got this section three pages later because I'm not that deep into it. Um, <laughs> That's what she said. Oh, yeah. He said. Yeah, it would be weird. <laughs> not used to getting finger fucked. <laughs> is uh, desire as a vehicle for the character and the story. Okay. So this is on page seven. And it's two paragraphs. He says, The dramatic code embedded deep in the human psyche is an artistic description of how a person can grow or evolve. This code is also a process of under, going on underneath every story. The storyteller hides this process beneath particular characters and actions. But the code of growth is what the audience ultimately takes from a good story. Let's look at the dramatic code in its simplest form. In the dramatic code, change is fueled by desire. The story world doesn't boil down to, I think, therefore I am. But rather, I want, therefore I am. Desire in all of its facets is what makes the world go around. It is what propels all conscious living things and gives them direction. A story tracks what a person wants, what he'll do to get it, and what costs he'll have to pay along the way. And so my note on that is that in writing and in filmmaking, we need to think about the real world. What did I write down? We <laughs> need to think about the real world. We don't, we don't float around, uh-huh. right, in the world having things happen to us, but rather our lives are the result of all of our successes and failures. Every desire we've ever had mm-hmm. is what gives us our story, you know? Yeah. So it, you need to fold that back into your character. They're not floating around the world, you know? You're a wizard, Harry. You're a wizard, Harry. <laughs> no, but no, it's true. Um, it's like you should treat every moment of your character as the inciting incident for their next action mm-hmm. because you've already abandoned the three-act structure. Mm-hmm. And it, I feel like approaching it from that manner is more true to real life. Mm-hmm. And realistically, when there are elements in the stories that we tell that people can relate to, they become more meaningful. And yeah, like the experiences that most of us live out are based on our individual motivations. Like you get married because you want to have a house and you want to have kids and all these things. And yeah, like you, you take the corporate job because you want to have the security. So like we don't... And then you fight against that corporate job. (laughs) Yeah, like we, we don't make 
like choices, yeah, don't happen to us. We make choices based on the things that we want out of life. Based on and, your circumstance. Yeah, yeah, and to have a character that's yeah just floating around and not purposeful in their actions doesn't make sense because that's not how life is experienced but that's what happens if you think back to the three act that's what happens with all the fat that comes with the three act I film fucked my mother oh no <laughs> what <laughs> i fucked my mother i thought you were gonna go hamlet and then i was like what she's talking about the bates motel <laughs> it just happens to me. I fucked my mother. Oh no. <laughs> An Oedipus complex. <laughs> I'm there with you, love. I'm right there with you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I must spit out my wine. Yeah, me too. And I'm not even drinking it. I got a hemorrhoid, almost shit blood down my leg. Oh, no. like, oh Don't no. do that. <laughs> <laughs> You buy the cream because you have the right motivation. Yeah, you, why was he at the store that day? He was buying hemorrhoid cream. It's the answer to the Father John Misty song. All because I went to the store. All because I went to the store to buy hemorrhoid cream. So I bust my ass in that bullshit job and I was fucking like, Father John Misty. <laughs> All right, love. One last little bit, and then we'll get out of here. We'll go make cranberry pork. We're going to get hammered on wine. I'm going to try to fuck my wife. It's going to be awesome. (laughs) Okay? Don't say that in the microphone, because now it reads, I'm going to rape my wife. No, I'm joking. Um, So the last little bit here um, is it's got an exercise, which I, I, I really just want to kind of introduce to everybody on the other end of this microphone and possibly yourself because we're we the excluded note from today's episode was Kristen had an epiphany in the shower right. which you where all my epiphanies occur where all it, it's accelerant I excel. <laughs> <laughs> accelerant um so the last little bit that i've got here is um he's got a section on page 19 so i did jump forward you know a couple of pages <laughs> Go, Brett, go. To uh, write something that may change your life. And this is the longest section. My apologies if my tongue dies, but I I, I need to read this. Be- oh, titties. Um, <laughs> so it's in the chapter titled Premise. Are you going to live over there? I'm good. <laughs> I'm listening. I'm invested. You're invested? I'm motivated. You're, you're invested in Doge for like $50. <laughs> I have 2020 coins. Oh, yeah. Um, Write something that might change your life. This is a very high standard, but it may be the most valuable piece of advice you'll ever get as a writer. I've never seen a writer go wrong following it. Why? Because if a story is that important to you, it may be that important to a lot of people in the audience. And when you're done writing the story, no matter what else happens, you've changed your life. You might say, I'd love to write a story that changes my life, but how do I know it'll change my life before I've written it? Simple. Do some self-exploration, something most writers, incredibly enough, never do. Most writers are content to think of a premise that's a loose copy of somebody else's movie, book, or play. 
it seems to have commercial appeal, but it's not personal to the writer in any way. The story will never rise above the generic and is so bound to fail. To explore yourself, to have a chance to write something that may change your life, you have to get some data on who you are. And you have to get it outside of you, in front of you, so you can study it from distance. Two exercises can help you do this. First, write down your wish list. A list of everything you would like to see pop up on the screen, in a book, or at the theater. It's what you are passionately interested in, and it's what entertains you. You might jot down characters you've imagined, cool plot twists, great lines of dialogue that have popped into your head. You might list themes that you care about or certain genres that always attracted you. Write them all down on as many sheets of paper as you need. This is your own personal wish list. So don't reject anything. Banish thoughts like that would cost too much money. And don't organize while you write. Let one idea trigger another. The second exercise is to write a premise list. This is a list of every premise you've ever thought of. That might be 5, 20, 50, or more. Again, take as many sheets of paper as you need. The key requirement of this exercise is that you express each premise in one sentence. This forces you to be very clear about each idea, and it allows you to see all of your premises together in one place. Once you've completed both your wish list and your premise list, lay them out before you and study. Look for core elements that repeat themselves on both lists. Certain characters and character types may reoccur, a quality of voice may seep through the lines of dialogue, one or two kinds of stories or genres may repeat, or there may be a theme or a subject matter or time period that you keep going back to. As you study, key patterns will start to emerge about what you love. This, in the rawest form possible, is your vision. It's who you are as a writer and as a human being on the paper in front of you. Go back to it often. It's a bit off topic, but also a bit synchronicity. Um, I have the voice of the meditation guy on the Netflix show. <laughs> <laughs> I like your voice. Um, now close your eyes <laughs> and listen to your breath. I like your voice. <laughs> Um, no, it's a bit off topic, but synchronicity to some extent to what you just read. Um, synchronicity. I sh I saw. Uh, <laughs> I shit myself. <laughs> I shit myself. No, I saw a post on Facebook today that I shared on my own page um, that was talking about Kurt Vonnegut, and mm -hmm. um, I think when he was still like younger and like kind of a teenager like finding jobs and stuff to do before he became like a successful writer um one of the best <laughs> <laughs> where um he was talking i can't remember what the job was he had taken up but i think it was like a summer job and he was talking to you know the person that he was mm -hmm. working for and they were just asking him like the standard questions you ask people you don't know like oh what are you into do you play sports whatever and he's like oh no i'm like into theater and stuff like that and 
the person was like, oh, that's really awesome. And he was like, oh, I'm not really all that good at any of it. And he was like, but it's awesome that you do it because mm-hmm. it's, you know, getting to know yourself and getting to know the things that you love. And like, I like that way of viewing, um, doing work that you want to do. Like, even if some of it's not stuff you're going to be able to do or some of yeah. it's not practical. or some You can of do the generic and make money, but it's not going to fulfill you. Yeah. yeah. Like if, if you keep track of these ideas or like do these activities that are just things you enjoy, even if they're not necessarily um, financially, like, like if you're making a journal, like if you're mm-hmm. not financially the most like practical things you can do right now or um, you know, if you're doing hobbies that you're not necessarily fantastic at yeah. or whatever, but you enjoy them, like it's developing the sense of who you are and what it is that you enjoy and, what and engaging your with are. yourself. Yeah. And like, mm-hmm. ultimately at the end of the day, whether or not you're wildly successful or you just make enough money to get by or whatever, cause that's something Anne Lamont talks about mm-hmm. and bird by bird is that being she, the broke writer. <laughs> yeah. Like she, she wasn't at a certain point in her life anyway, like so successful that she didn't have to worry about money at all like she still Mm -hmm. had financial struggles but it's like ultimately at the end of the day if you're discovering yourself and discovering your passions and what's meaningful to you like that seems more rewarding than like am i making all this money or like if you're journaling like if you're if some of it's not practical and you can't do it right away, mm-hmm. but you're still kind of discovering what the middle ground is of, I love this and what can I do to achieve this? Like it's still meaningful work that you're doing. Yeah. I think it brings you back to the script. It takes away all your, you know, when I meet the Cohen brothers, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's like, no, fuck them. Write the story that's true to you. Yeah. You're not going to enjoy the process. You're not going to engage with the characters. You're just going to be making a mashup of all the things that inspired you. And thus you don't have your voice developed. And I think a lot of people like have done it multiple times. I've got three or four completed manuscripts that like I, I could sit down and I could edit them. But when I read them, I go, I was reading a lot of Stephen King there, and I don't really connect to anybody except for my main character. Like, I, my outside characters are the fat, and I'm so involved in this one part. Or mm-hmm. I wrote um, a book about a vigilante who goes off on, you know, child rapists pretty much. And it's just the concept, but all the characters are flat, but the world looks good, you know? And these were stepping stones to hopefully mash them all together when I find a story that I'm meant to write, Mm -hmm. which is, as we talked about on the last one, I believe the memoir about that period where I had the Jeep and I'd lost my father and fixing the Jeep helped me fix myself and find you. So... Nope, that's the premise. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I get it. Yeah, and I I feel like a lot of people get lost in this, especially now that we're living in an age where social media and like fast entertainment and stuff. ADHD of America. Yeah, and like you can literally, like, if you want to watch something, download it in an instant. So it's like we're an impatient culture where we want what we want now. Like, I feel like a lot of people get lost in um, 
this idea that you have to be current and popular and stuff to be successful. And the truth of the matter is when you're true to yourself, there are, we're all so unique and so different. And there are other people out there that on some scale can relate to the experiences that you're going through that maybe depending on how unique they are, don't feel like those experiences are being vocalized or represented. So when you're true to yourself, like there are always going to be people out there that like connect to that experience mm-hmm. and are moved by that experience. Like and... Rocky is not the greatest movie ever made, <laughs> but try watching Rocky and going, I'm at least going to go for it. I'm going to do the thing that I think I can yeah. do, even if it beats the shit out of me and I don't <laughs> accomplish it in the end. Like that, there's a reason why that movie resonates with, America. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I I think there's something very profound about, like, at least attempting to embrace work that speaks to you, even if it's a little off the beaten track. Mm -hmm. Like, it's meaningful, and it's, even if it flops, even if you write a book that nobody reads, or you shoot a movie that nobody watches, and it's a two-star yeah. movie, like, it's it's an expression of yourself that you got to experience. Yeah. You wrote a book that made no money, so <laughs> now you're a broke author. Before, you were just a broke guy who wished he would have been an author. <laughs> <laughs> At least now you've entered the realm of broke author. <laughs> and you've learned about yourself in the process, yeah. and there's there's something very powerful about that, knowing yourself for who you are. And That's not... what that passage meant a lot to me on, is that whole line of, all we're doing right now is, this is a premise, this is what I wish I could see in film. This is a premise, this is what I could see in film. And then when you're done, and you need to go back to it often, as he says... You have laid out in front of you everything that you want artistically that the world has not given you yet. Mm-hmm. And so only you can take that information and actually build your story out of it, which is beyond the physical story on the page, but your own actual life. If you have these premises that like reflect love in a particular area or hate in a particular area or a particular genre that pushes you you'll know more about yourself after that exercise and i fully intend to make a card game out of that exercise (laughs) (laughs) we'll do our little like write down passages yeah we should just write down premises and we should have like a specific color of card as premise and then Things that we would love to see in a movie is a different color. And then we lay it down and like say premises. Brett would like his wife to flash him at the dinner table. And then scenarios are like dinosaur walks into the room or butler gets shot in the head or crazed serial Colonel killer does a drive by on a fucking school bus. You know what? It's a Colonel Mustard. Colonel in Mustard the in the library. And we make our own like fucking, you know, jokes of hazard. <laughs> you ready to go make cranberry pork chops? Yeah. I'm ready to look at you in that dress. We'll have to talk drunk about our, on wine. We'll have to talk about our progress with our work next Acceleration. Episode. Next episode. <laughs> Stay tuned. Stay tuned. I love you, sweetheart. I love you. And I love you guys. And we will talk to you whenever the next one comes out <laughs> at this point. But I don't really give a fuck about you guys. I'm working on me. <laughs> <laughs>